Part Three of Mercenary by Mac Reynolds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mercenary, seven. In a faraway past, Kingston had once been the capital of the United States. For a short time, when Washington's men were in flight after the debacle of their defeat in New York City, the government of the United Colonies had held session in this Hudson River town. It had been its one moment of historic glory, and afterward Kingston had slipped back into being a minor city on the edge of the Catskills, approximately halfway between New York and Albany. Of most recent years it had become one of the two recruiting centers which bordered the Catskill Military Reservation, which, in turn, was one of the score or so population-cleared areas throughout the continent where rival corporations or unions could meet and settle their differences in combat, given permission of the military category department of the government, and permission was becoming ever easier to acquire. It had slowly evolved, the resorting to trial by combat to settle disputes between competing corporations, disputes between corporations and unions, disputes between unions over jurisdiction slowly but predictably. Since the earliest days of the first industrial revolution, conflict between these elements had often broken into violence, sometimes on a scale comparable to minor warfare. An early example was the Union organizing in Colorado, when armed elements of the Western Federation of Miners shot it out with similarly armed detectives hired by the mine owners, and later with the troops of an unsympathetic state government. By the middle of the twentieth century, unions had become one of the biggest businesses in the country, and by this time a considerable amount of the industrial conflict had shifted to fights between them, for jurisdiction over dues-paying members. Battles on the waterfront, assassination and counter-assassination by gun-toting goon squads dominated by gangsters, industrial sabotage, frays between pickets and scabs, all were common occurrences. But it was the coming of Telly which increasingly brought such conflicts literally before the public eye. Zealous reporters made ever greater effort to bring the actual mayhem before the eyes of their viewers, and never were their efforts more highly rewarded. A society based upon private endeavor is as jealous of a vacuum as is Mother Nature. Give a desire that can be filled profitably, and the means can somehow be found to realize it. At one point in the nation's history the railroad lords had dominated the economy. Later it became the petroleum princes of Texas and elsewhere. But toward the end of the twentieth century, the communications industry slowly gained prominence. Nothing was more greatly in demand than feeding the insatiable maw of the telefan. Nothing, ultimately, became more profitable. And increasingly, the telebuff endorsed the more sadistic of the fictional and non-fictional programs presented him. Even in the earliest years of the industry, producers had found that murder and mayhem War and frontier gunfights took precedence over less gruesome subjects. Music was drowned out by gunfire. 
the dance replaced by the shuffle of cowboy and rustler advancing down a dusty street toward each other, their fingertips brushing the grips of their six-shooters. The comedian's banter fell away before the chatter of the gangster's tommy-gun. And increasing realism was demanded. The telly-reporter on the scene of a police arrest, preferably a murder, a rumble between rival gangs of juvenile delinquents, a longshoreman's fray in which scores of workers were hospitalized. When attempts were made to suppress such broadcasts, the howl of freedom of speech and the press went up, financed by tycoons clever enough to realize the value of the subjects they covered so adequately. The vacuum was there, the desire, the need. Bread the populace had. Trank was available to all. But the need was for the circus, the vicious, sadistic circus, and bit by bit, over the years and decades, the way was found to circumvent the country's laws and traditions to supply the need. Aye, a way is always found. The final Universal Disarmament Pact, which had totally banned all weapons invented since the year 1900 and provided for complete inspection, had not ended the fear of war. And thus there was excuse to give the would-be soldier, the potential defender of the country in some future inter-nation conflict, practical experience. Slowly tolerance grew to allow union and corporation to fight it out, hiring the services of mercenaries. Slowly rules grew up to govern such fracases. Slowly a department of government evolved. The military category became as acceptable as the next, and the mercenary a valued, even idolized, member of society. And the field became practically the only one in which a status quo-oriented socio-economic system allowed for advancement in caste. Joe Mauser and Max Maine strolled the streets of Kingston in an extreme of atmosphere seldom to be enjoyed. Not only was the advent of a divisional magnitude fracas only a short period away, but the freedom of an election day as well. The carnival, the Mardi Gras, the fete, the fiesta of an election. Election day, when each aristocrat became only a man, and each man an aristocrat, free of all society's artificially conceived, caste-perpetuating rituals and taboos. Carnival. The day was young, but already the streets were thick with revelers, with dancers, with drunks. A score of bands played. Youngsters in particular ran about attired in costume. There were barbecues and flowing beer kegs. On the outskirts of town were roller coasters and ferris wheels, fun houses and drive-it-yourself miniature cars. Carnival! Max said happily, You drink, Joe? Or maybe you like Trank better. Obviously, he loved to roll the other's first name over his tongue. Joe wondered in amusement how often the little man had found occasion to call a mid-middle by his first name. No, Trank, he said, alcohol for me. Mankind's old faithful. Well, Max debated, get high on alcohol and bingo, a hangover in the morning. But Trank, you wake up with a smile. And a desire for more trank to keep the mood going, Joe said wryly. 
get smashed on alcohol, and you suffer for it eventually. Well, that's one way of looking at it, Max argued happily. So let's start off with a couple of quick ones in this here upper joint. Joe looked the place over. He didn't know Kingston overly well, but by the appearance of the building and by the entry, it was probably the swankiest hotel in town. He shrugged. So far as he was concerned, he appreciated the greater comfort and the better service of his middle-caste bars, restaurants, and hotels over the ones he had patronized when a lower. However, his wasn't an immediate desire to push into the preserves of the uppers, not until he had won rightfully to their status. But on this occasion the little fellow wanted to drink at an upper bar. Very well, it was election day. Let's go, he said to Max. In the uniform of a rank captain of the military category, there was little to indicate caste level, and ordinarily, given the correct air of nonchalance, Joe Mauser, in uniform, would have been able to go anywhere, without so much as a raised eyebrow, until he had presented his credit card, which indicated his caste. But Max was another thing. He was obviously a lower, and probably a low lower at that. But space was made for them at a bar packed with election day celebrants, politicians involved in the day's speeches and voting, higher-ranking officers of the hair forces having a day off, and various uppers of both sexes in town for the excitement of the fracas to come. "'Beer,' Joe said to the bartender. "'Not me,' Max crowed. "'Champagne! Only the best for Max Mains. Give me some of that champagne liquor I always been hearing about.' Joe had the bill credited to his card, and they took their bottles and glasses to a newly abandoned table. The place was too packed to have awaited the services of a waiter, although poor Max probably would have loved such attention. Lower, and even middle bars and restaurants, were universally automated, and the waiter or waitress a thing of yesteryear. Max looked about the room in awe. "'This is living,' he announced. "'I wonder what they'd say if I went to the desk and ordered a room.' Joe Mauser wasn't as highly impressed as his batman. In fact, he'd often stayed in the larger cities, in hostelries as sumptuous as this, though only of middle status. Kingston's best was on the mediocre side. He said, "'They'd probably tell you they were filled up.' Max was indignant. "'Because I'm a loa? It's election day!' Joe said mildly, "'Because they probably are filled up. But for that matter, they might brush you off. It's not as though an upper went to a middle or lower hotel and asked for accommodations. But what do you want, justice?' Max dropped it. He looked down into his glass. "'Hey!' he complained. "'What did they give me? This stuff tastes like weak hard cider!' Joe laughed. "'What do you think it was going to taste like?' Max took another unhappy sip. "'I thought it was supposed to be the best drink you could buy. You know, really strong. It's just bubbly wine!' A voice said dryly, your companion doesn't seem to be a connoisseur of the French vintages, Captain. 
Joe turned. Balt Hare and two others occupied the table next to them. Joe chuckled amiably and said, Truthfully, it was my own reaction the first time I drank sparkling wine, sir. Indeed, Hare said. I can imagine. He fluttered a hand. Lieutenant Colonel Paul Warren of Marshal Cogswell's staff and Colonel Lajos Arpad of Budapest, Captain Joseph Mauser. Joe Mauser came to his feet and clicked his heels, bowing from the waist in approved military protocol. The other two didn't bother to come to their feet, but did condescend to shake hands. The Sov officer said, disinterestedly, Ah, yes, this is one of your fabulous customs, isn't it? On an election day, everyone is quite entitled to go anywhere, anywhere at all. And, ah, uh, he made a sound somewhat like a giggle, associate with anyone at all. Joe Mauser resumed his seat, then looked at him. That is correct, a custom going back to the early history of the country, when all men were considered equal in such matters as law and civil rights. Gentlemen, may I present Rank Private Max Maines, my orderly. Balt Hare, who had obviously already had a few, looked at him dourly. You can carry these things to the point of ludicrous, Captain. For a man with your ambitions, I'm surprised. The infantry officer the younger Hare had introduced as Lieutenant Colonel Warren of Stonewall Cogswell's staff said idly, ambitions? Does the captain have ambitions? How in Zen can a middle have ambitions, Balt?" He stared at Joe Mauser superciliously, but then scowled. "'Haven't I seen you somewhere before?' Joe said evenly. "'Yes, sir. Five years ago we were both with the marshal in a fracas in the Little Bighorn Reservation. Your company was pinned down on a knoll by a battery of field artillery. The marshal sent me to your relief. We sneaked in, up an arroyo, and were able to get most of you out." "'I was wounded,' the colonel said, the superciliousness gone and a strange element in his voice above the alcohol there earlier. Joe Mauser said nothing to that. Max Maines was stirring unhappily now. These officers were talking above his head, even as they ignored him. He had a vague feeling that he was being defended by Captain Mauser, but he didn't know how or why. Balt Hare had been occupied in shouting fresh drinks. Now he turned back to the table. Well, Colonel, it's all very secret, these ambitions of Captain Mauser. I understand he's been an aide-de-camp to Marshal Cogswell in the past, but the Marshal will be distressed to learn that on this occasion Captain Mauser has a secret by which he expects to rout your forces. Indeed, yes, the captain is quite the strategist." Balt Hare laughed abruptly. "'And what good would this do the captain? Why, on my father's word, if he succeeds, all efforts will be made to make the captain a caste equal of ours. Not just on election day, mind you, but all three hundred sixty-five days of the year." Joe Mauser was on his feet his face expressionless. He said, "'Shall we go, Max? Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Colonel Arpad, a privilege to meet you. Colonel Warren, a pleasure to renew acquaintance.' Joe Mauser turned, and trailed by his orderly, left.
Lieutenant Colonel Warren, pale, was on his feet too. Balt Hare was chuckling. "'Sit down, Paul, sit down. Not important enough to be angry about. The man's a clod.' Warren looked at him bleakly. "'I wasn't angry, Balt. The last time I saw Captain Mauser I was slung over his shoulder. He carried, tugged, and dragged me some two miles through enemy fire.' Balt Hare carried it off with a shrug. "'Well, that's his profession. Category military. A mercenary for hire. I assume he received his pay. He could have left me. Common sense dictated that he leave me. Balt Hare was annoyed. Well, then, we see what I've contended all along. The ambitious captain doesn't have common sense. Colonel Paul Warren shook his head. You're wrong there. Common sense Joseph Mauser has. Considerable ability he has. He's one of the best combat men in the field. But I'd hate to serve under him." The Hungarian was interested. But why? Because he doesn't have luck, and in the dill you need luck. Warren grunted in sour memory. Had the telecameras been focused on Joe Mauser, there at the Little Bighorn, he would have been a month-long sensation to the telebuffs, with all that means. He grunted again. There wasn't a tele-team within the mile. The captain probably didn't realize that, Balt Hare snorted. Otherwise, his heroics would have been modified. Warren flushed with displeasure and sat down. He said, Possibly we should discuss the business before us. If your father is in agreement, the fracas can begin in three days." He turned to the representative of the Sov world. "'You have satisfied yourselves that neither force is violating the disarmament pact?' Lejos Arpad nodded. "'We will wish to have observers on the field itself, of course, but preliminary observation has been satisfactory.' He had been interested in the play between these two and the lower caste officer. He said now, Pardon me. As you know, this is my first visit to the, um, West. I am fascinated. If I understand what just transpired, our Captain Mauser is a capable junior officer ambitious to rise in rank and status in your society. He looked at Balt Hare. Why are you opposed to his so rising? Young Hare was testy about the whole matter. Of what purpose is an upper caste if every Tom, Dick, and Harry enters it at will?" Warren looked at the door through which Joe and Max had exited from the cocktail lounge. He opened his mouth to say something, closed it again, and held his peace. The Hungarian said, looking from one of them to the other, "'In the Sov world we seek out such ambitious persons and utilize their abilities.' Lieutenant Colonel Warren laughed abruptly. "'So do we here, theoretically. We are free, whatever that means. However,' he added sarcastically, "'it does help to have good schooling, good connections, relatives in positions of prominence, abundant shares of good stocks, that sort of thing. And these one is born with, in this free world of ours, Colonel Arpad.' The Sov military observer clucked his tongue. An indication of a declining society. 
Balt Hare turned on him. "'And is it any different in your world?' he said sneeringly. "'Is it merely coincidence that the best positions in the Sov world are held by party members, and that it is all but impossible for anyone not born of party-member parents to become one? Are not the best schools filled with the children of party-members? Are not only party-members allowed to keep servants? And isn't it so that—Lieutenant Colonel Warren said, "'Gentlemen, let us not start World War III at this spot, at this late occasion.'" Eight. Baron Malcolm Hare's field headquarters were in the ruins of a farmhouse in a town once known as Bearsville. His forces, and those of Marshal Stonewall Cogswell, were on the march, but as yet their main bodies had not come into contact. Save for skirmishes between cavalry units there had been no action. The ruined farmhouse had been a victim of an earlier fracas in this reservation, which had seen, in its comparatively brief time, more combat than Belgium, that cockpit of Europe. There was a sheen of oily moisture on the baron's bullet-like head, and his officers weren't particularly happy about it. Malcolm Hare characteristically went into a fracas with confidence, an aggressive confidence so strong that it often carried the day. In battles past it had become a tradition that Hare's morale was worth a thousand men. The energy he expended was the despair of his doctors, who had been warning him for a decade. But now something was missing. A forefinger traced over the military chart before them. "'So far as we know, Marshal Cogswell has established his command here in Saugerties. Anybody have any suggestions as to why?' A major grumbled, "'It doesn't make much sense, sir.' You know the Marshal. It's probably a fake. If we have any superiority at all, it's our artillery." "'And the old fox wouldn't want to join the issue on the plains, down near the river,' a colonel added. "'It's his game to keep up into the mountains, with his cavalry and light infantry. He's got Jack Alshuler's cavalry, most experienced veterans in the field.' "'I know who he's got,' Hare growled in irritation. Stop reminding me. Where is the devil is Balt? Coming up, sir, Balt Hare said. He had entered only moments ago, a sheaf of signals in his hand. Why didn't they make that date 1910 instead of 1900? With radio we could speed up communications. His father interrupted testily. Better still, why not make it 1945? Then we could speed up to the point where we could polish ourselves off. What have you got?" Balt Hare said, his face in sulk, "'Some of my lads based in West Hurley report concentrations of Cogswell's infantry and artillery near Ashokan Reservoir.' "'Nonsense!' somebody snapped. "'We'd have him!' The younger Hare slapped his swagger-stick against his bare leg and kilt. "'Possibly it's a feint,' he admitted. How much were they able to observe?" his father demanded. Not much. They were driven off by a superior squadron. The hovercraft forces are screening everything they do with heavy cavalry units. I told you we needed more— I don't need your advice at this point, his father snapped. The older hare went back to the map, scowling still. 
I don't see what he expects to do, working out of Saugerties. A voice behind them said, Sir, may I have your permission? Half of the assembled officers turned to look at the newcomer. Balt Hare snapped, Captain Mauser, why aren't you with your lads? Turn them over to my second-in-command, sir, Joe Mauser said. He was standing to attention, looking at Baron Hare. The Baron glowered at him. What is the meaning of this cavalier intrusion, Captain? Certainly you must have your orders. Are you under the illusion that you are part of my staff? No, sir, Joe Mauser clipped. I came to report that I am ready to put into execution. The great plan, Balt Hare ejaculated. He laughed brittlely. The second day of the fracas, when nobody really knows where old Cogswell is, or what he plans to do, and here comes the captain with his secret plan." Joe looked at him. He said evenly, "'Yes, sir.' The Baron's face had gone dark, as much in anger at his son as with the upstart cavalry captain. He began to growl ominously. "'Captain Mauser. Rejoin your command and obey your orders." Joe Mauser's facial expression indicated that he had expected this. He kept his voice level, however, even under the chuckling scorn of his immediate superior, Balt Hare. He said, "'Sir, I will be able to tell you where Marshal Cogswell is and every troop at his command.' For a moment there was silence, all but a stunned silence. Then the Major, who had suggested the Saugerties Field Command Headquarters were a fake, blurted a curt laugh. "'There's no time for levity, Captain,' Balt Hare clipped. "'Get to your command!' A colonel said, "'Just a moment, sir. I've fought with Joe Mauser before. He's a good man.' "'Not that good,' someone else huffed. "'Does he claim to be clairvoyant?' Joe Mauser said flatly, "'Have a semaphore man posted here this afternoon. I'll be back at that time.' He spun on his heel and left them. Balt Hare rushed to the door after him, shouting, "'Captain, that's an order! Return!' But the other was obviously gone. Enraged, the younger Hare began to shrill commands to a noncom in the way of organizing a pursuit. His father called wearily, that's enough, Bolt. Mauser has evidently taken leave of his senses. We made the initial mistake of encouraging this idea he had, or thought he had. We? his son snapped in return. I had nothing to do with it. All right, all right. Let's tighten up here. Now, what other information have your scouts come up with? 9. At the Kingston Airport Joe Mauser rejoined Max Maines, his face drawn now. "'Everything go all right?' the little man said anxiously. "'I don't know,' Joe said. "'I still couldn't tell them the story. Old Cogswell is as quick as a coyote. We pull this little caper today, and he'll be ready to meet it tomorrow.' He looked at the two-place sailplane which sat on the tarmac. "'Everything all set?' "'Far as I know.' Max said. He looked at the motorless aircraft. "'You're sure you've been checked out on these things, Captain?' "'Yes,' Joe said. 
I bought this particular soaring glider more than a year ago, and I've put almost a thousand hours in it. Now, where's the pilot of that light plane?" A single-engined sports plane was attached to the glider by a fifty-foot nylon rope. Even as Joe spoke, a youngster poked his head from the plane's window and grinned back at them. "'Ready?' he yelled. "'Come on, Max,' Joe said. "'Let's pull the canopy off this thing. We don't want it in the way while you're semaphoring.' A figure was approaching them from the administration building, a uniformed man, and somehow familiar. "'A moment, Captain Mauser!' Joe placed him now the Sov World representative he'd met at Balthair's table in the upper bar a couple of days ago. What was his name? Colonel Arpad. Lejos Arpad. The Hungarian approached and looked at the sailplane in interest. As a representative of my government, a military attaché checking upon possible violations of the Universal Disarmament Pact, may I request what you are about to do, Captain? Joe Mauser looked at him emptily. "'How did you know I was here and what I was doing?' The Sov colonel smiled gently. "'It was by suggestion of Marshal Cogswell. He is a great man for detail. It disturbed him that an—what did he call it?—an old pro like yourself should join with vacuum-tube transport rather than continental hovercraft. He didn't think it made sense and suggested that Possibly you had in mind some scheme that would utilize weapons of a post-1900 period in your efforts to bring success to Baron Hare's forces. So I have investigated, Captain Mauser." "'And the Marshal knows about this sailplane?' Joe Mauser's face was blank. "'I didn't say that. So far as I know, he doesn't.' "'Then, Colonel Arpad, with your permission, I'll be taking off,' the Hungarian said. With what end in mind, Captain? Using this glider as a reconnaissance aircraft. Captain, I warn you, aircraft were not in use in warfare until— But Joe Mauser cut him off, equally briskly. Aircraft were first used in combat by Pancho Villa's forces a few years previous to World War I. They were also used in the Balkan Wars of about the same period. But those were powered craft. This is a glider, invented and in use before the year 1900, and hence open to utilization." The Hungarian clipped, "'But the Wright brothers didn't fly even gliders until—' Joe looked him full in the face. "'But you of the Sov world do not admit that the Wrights were the first to fly, do you?' The Hungarian closed his mouth abruptly. Joe said evenly, but even if Ivan Ivanovich, or whatever you claim his name was, didn't invent flight of heavier-than-aircraft, the glider was flown variously before 1900, including Otto Lilienthal in the 1890s, and was designed as far back as Leonardo da Vinci." The Sov World Colonel stared at him for a long moment, then gave an inane giggle. He stepped back and flicked Joe Mauser a salute. "'Very well, Captain. As a matter of routine, I shall report this use of an aircraft for reconnaissance purposes, and undoubtedly a commission will meet to investigate the propriety of the departure. Meanwhile, good luck." Joe returned the salute and swung a leg over the cockpit side. 
Max was already in the front seat, his semaphore flags, maps and binoculars on his lap. He had been staring in dismay at the Sove officer, now was relieved that Joe had evidently pulled it off. Joe waved to the plane ahead. Two mechanics had come up to steady the wings for the initial ten or fifteen feet of the motorless craft's passage over the ground behind the towing craft. Joe said to Max, "'Did you explain to the pilot that under no circumstances was he to pass over the line of the military reservation, that we'd cut before we reached that point?' "'Yes, sir,' Max said nervously. He'd flown before, on the commercial lines, but he'd never been in a glider. They began lurching across the field slowly, then gathered speed. And as the sailplane took speed, it took grace. After it had been pulled a hundred feet or so, Joe eased back the stick, and it slipped gently into the air, four or five feet off the ground. The towing airplane was still taxiing, but with its tow airborne it picked up speed quickly. Another two hundred feet, and it too was in the air and beginning to climb. The glider behind it held to a speed of sixty miles or so. At ten thousand feet, the plane leveled off, and the pilot's head swiveled to look back at them. Joe Mauser waved to him and dropped the release lever, which ejected the nylon rope from the glider's nose. The plane dove away, trailing the rope behind it. Joe knew that the plane pilot would later drop it over the airport, where it could easily be retrieved. In the direction of Mount Overlook, he could see cumulus clouds and the dark turbulence which meant strong updraft. He headed in that direction. Except for the whistling of wind, there is complete silence in a soaring glider. Max Maines began to call back to his superior, who was taken aback by the volume, and dropped his voice. He said, Look, Captain, what keeps it up?" Joe grinned. He liked the buoyance of glider-flying, the nearest approach of man to the bird, and thus far everything was going well. He told Max, "'An airplane plows through the air currents. A glider rides on top of them.' "'Yeah, but suppose the current is going down?' "'Then we avoid it.' This sailplane only has a gliding angle ratio of one to twenty-five, but it's a workhorse with a payload of some four hundred pounds. A really high-performance glider can have a ratio of as much as one to forty. Joe had found a strong updraft where a wind ran up the side of a mountain. He banked, went into a circling turn. The gauge indicated they were climbing at a rate of eight meters per second, nearly fifteen hundred feet a minute. Max hadn't got the rundown on the theory of the glider. That was obvious in his expression. Joe Mauser, even while searching the ground below keenly, went into it further. A wind up against a mountain will give an updraft. Storm clouds will, even a newly plowed field in a bright sun. So you go from one of these to the next. Yeah, great, but when you're between, Max protested. Then, when you have a one-to-twenty-five ratio, you go twenty-five feet forward for each one you drop. If you started a mile high, you could go twenty-five miles before you touched ground." He cut himself off quickly. "'Look, what's that down there? Get your glasses on it!' Max caught his excitement. His binoculars were tight to his eyes. "'Soldiers! Cavalry! 
They sure ain't ours. They must be hovercraft lads. And look, field artillery! Joe Mauser was piloting with his left hand, his right smoothing out a chart on his lap. He growled, What are they doing there? That's at least a full brigade of cavalry. Here, let me have those glasses. While his knees gripped the stick, he went into a slow circle, as he stared down at the column of men. Jack Alshuler, he whistled in surprise. The marshals crack heavy cavalry, and several batteries of artillery. He swung the glasses in a wider scope, and the whistle turned into a hiss of comprehension. They're doing a complete circle of the reservation. They're going to hit the Baron from the direction of Phoenicia. 10. Marshal Stonewall Cogswell directed his old-fashioned telescope in the direction his chief of staff indicated. "'What is it?' he grunted. "'It's an airplane, sir. Over a military reservation with a fracas in progress?' "'Yes, sir.' The other put his glasses back on the circling object. "'Then what is it, sir? Certainly not a free balloon.' "'Balloons!' The marshal snorted, as though to himself, legal to use. The Union forces had them toward the end of the Civil War, but practically useless in a fracas of movement. They were standing before the former resort hotel which housed the marshal's headquarters. Other staff members were streaming from the building, and one of the ever-present tele-reporting crews were hurriedly setting up cameras. The marshal turned and barked, does anybody know what in Zen that confounded thing circling up there is?" Baron Zwerdling, the aging category transport magnate, head of Continental Hovercraft, hobbled onto the wooden veranda and stared with the others. "'An airplane,' he croaked. "'Hair's gone too far this time. Too far, too far. This will strip him, strip him, understand?' Then he added, "'Why doesn't it make any noise?' Lieutenant Colonel Paul Warren stood next to his commanding officer. "'It looks like a glider, sir.' Cogswell glowered at him. "'A what?' "'A glider, sir. It's a sport not particularly popular these days. What keeps it up, confound it?' Paul Warren looked at him. "'The same thing that keeps a hawk up, an albatross, a gull.' "'A vulture, you mean?' Cogswell snarled. He watched it for another long moment, his face working. He whirled on his chief of artillery. "'Jed, can you bring that thing down?' The other had been viewing the craft through field binoculars, his face as shocked as the rest of them. Now he faced his chief and lowered the glasses, shaking his head. "'Not with the artillery of pre-1900, no, sir.' "'What can you do?' Cogswell barked. The artilleryman was shaking his head. We could mount some Maxim guns on wagon wheels or something, keep him from coming low. He doesn't have to come low, Cogswell growled unhappily. He spun on Lieutenant Colonel Warren again. He jerked his thumb upward. Those things! Warren was twisting his face in memory. Sometime about the turn of the century? How long can the thing stay up? Warren took in the surrounding mountainous countryside. Indefinitely, sir. A single pilot, as long as he is physically able to operate. 
If there are two pilots up there to relieve each other, they could stay until food and water ran out. How much weight do they carry? I'm not sure. One that size, certainly enough for two men and any equipment they need, say five hundred pounds. Cogswell had his telescope glued to his eyes again. He muttered under his breath, Five hundred pounds! They could even unload dynamite over our horses, stampede them all over the reservation. What's going on? Baron Zwerdling shrilled. What's going on, Marshal Cogswell? Cogswell ignored him. He watched the circling, circling craft for a full five minutes, breathing deeply. Then he lowered his glass and swept the assembled officers of his staff with an indignant glare. Ten ache, he grunted. An infantry colonel came to attention. Yes, sir. Cogswell said heavily, deliberately, Under a white flag, a dispatch to Baron Hare. My compliments and request for his terms. While you're at it, my compliments also to Captain Joseph Mauser. Swerdling was bug-eyeing him. "'Terms?' he rasped. The marshal turned to him. "'Yes, sir. Face reality. We're in the dill. I suggest you sue for terms as short of complete capitulation as you can make them.' "'You call yourself a soldier?' the transport tycoon began to shrill. "'Yes, sir,' Cogswell snapped. "'A soldier, not a butcher of the lads under me.' He called to the tele-reporter, who was getting as much of this as he could. "'Mr. Soligan, isn't it?' The reporter scurried forward, flicking signals to his cameraman for proper coverage. "'Yes, sir. Freddy Soligan, Marshal. Could you tell the tele-fans what this is all about, Marshal Cogswell? Folks, you all know the famous Marshal. Marshal Stonewall Cogswell, who hasn't lost a fracas in nearly ten years now commanding the forces of Continental Hovercraft. "'I'm losing one now,' Cogswell said grimly. "'Vacuum tube transport has pulled a gimmick out of the hat and things have pickled for us. It will be debated before the Military Category Department, of course, and undoubtedly the Sov World Military Attachés will have things to say. But as it appears now, the fracas, as we have known it, has been revolutionized.' revolutionized? Even the tele-reporter was flabbergasted. You mean, by that thing? He pointed upward, and the lenses of the cameras followed his finger. Yes, Cogswell growled unhappily. Do all of you need a blueprint? Do you think I can fight a fracas with that thing dangling above me, throughout the day hours? Do you understand the importance of reconnaissance in warfare? His eyes glowered. Do you think Napoleon would have lost Waterloo if he had the advantage of perfect reconnaissance such as that thing can deliver? Do you think Lee would have lost Gettysburg? Don't be ridiculous." He spun on Baron Zwerdling, who was stuttering his complete confusion. "'As it stands, Baron Hare knows every troop dispensation I make. All I know of his movements are from my cavalry scouts. I repeat, I am no butcher, sir. I will gladly cross swords with Baron Hare another day, when I, too, have—what do you call that confounded things, Paul?" "'Gliders,' Lieutenant Colonel Warren said. 11. Major Joseph Mauser, 
now attired in his best off-duty category military uniform, spoke his credentials to the receptionist. "'I have no definite appointment, but I am sure the Baron will see me,' he said. "'Yes, sir.' The receptionist did the things that receptionists do, then looked up at him again. "'Right through that door, Major.' Joe Mauser gave the door a quick double rap, and then entered before waiting an answer. Balt Hare, in mufti, was standing at a far window, a drink in his hand, rather than his customary swagger-stick. Nadine Hare sat in an easy-chair. The girl Joe Mauser loved had been crying. Joe Mauser, suppressing his frown, made with the usual amenities. Balt Hare, without answering them, finished his drink in a gulp and stared at the newcomer. The old stare, the aloof stare, an aristocrat looking at an underling as though wondering what made the fellow tick. He said, finally, "'I see. You have been raised to rank major.' "'Yes, sir,' Joe said. "'We are obviously occupied, major. What can either my sister or I possibly do for you?' Joe kept his voice even. He said, "'I wanted to see the baron.' Nadine Hare looked up, a twinge of pain crossing her face. "'Indeed,' Balt Hare said flatly, "'you are talking to the Baron, Major Mauser.' Joe Mauser looked at him, then at his sister, who had taken to her handkerchief again. Consternation ebbed up and over him in a flood. He wanted to say something such as, "'Oh, no!' but not even that could he utter." Hare was bitter. "'I assume I know why you are here, Major. You have come for your pound of flesh, undoubtedly. Even in these hours of our grief—' "'I—I didn't know. Please believe. You are so constituted that your ambition has no decency. Well, Major Mauser, I can only say that your arrangement was with my father. Even if I thought it a reasonable one. I doubt if I would sponsor your ambitions myself." Nadine Hare looked up wearily. "'Oh, Balt, come off it,' she said. "'The fact is, the Hare fortunes contracted a debt to you, Major. Unfortunately, it is a debt we cannot pay.' She looked into his face. First, my father's governmental connections do not apply to us. Second, six months ago, my father, worried about his health and attempting to avoid certain death taxes, transferred the family stocks into Balt's name. And Balt saw fit, immediately before the fracas, to sell all vacuum-tube transport stocks and invest in hovercraft. "'That's enough, Nadine,' her brother snapped testily. "'I see,' Joe said. He came to attention. "'Dr. Hare.' My apologies for intruding upon you in your time of bereavement." He turned to the new Baron. "'Baron Hare, my apologies for your bereavement.' Balt Hare glowered at him. Joe Mauser turned and marched for the door which he opened, then closed behind him. On the street, before the New York offices of vacuum-tube transport, he turned and for a moment looked up at the splendor of the building. Well, at least the common shares of the concern had skyrocketed following the victory. His rank had been up to major, 
and old Stonewall Cogswell had offered him a permanent position on his staff in command of aerial operations, no small matter of prestige. The difficulty was, he wasn't interested in the added money that would accrue to him, nor the higher rank, nor the prestige for that matter. He turned to go to his hotel. An unbelievably beautiful girl came down the steps of the building. She said, "'Joe?' He looked at her. "'Yes?' She put a hand on his sleeve. "'Let's go somewhere and talk, Joe.' "'About what?' He was infinitely weary now. "'About goals,' she said. "'As long as they exist, whether for individuals or nations, or a whole species, life is still worth the living. Things are a bit bogged down right now, but at the risk of sounding very trite, there's tomorrow. End of Mercenary by Mac Reynolds.